3 John on page 1026. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking non wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each my name. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Before we begin this time in the study of God's word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you say in your word, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. And Father, we know that oftentimes as we live out in this world, we do not always live in accordance to the scriptures that we know to be true and good for life. And I pray as we hear your word preached this morning, that your spirit would make its truths real to us, that it might convict us, and that your spirit would help us apply these truths in our lives so that we would be a witness for you. And I pray that your spirit will help me this morning also in the preaching of your word, for we know that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. When James O. Fraser graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from King's College in London, summa cum laude, probably the envy of many parents here in this room, stellar student, excellent in his profession. But instead of actually going into the engineering field, he decided to go to the mission field instead. And so instead of going to work for a company after graduation, he decided to attend CIM, which is China Inland Mission, training for a year in order to prepare to go overseas. Time passed, finances were raised, training was completed. Then he boarded a train to a port, and at that port he would take a ship that would take him to China. And he would spend most of his life in southwest China ministering to a people known as the Li Su. He would spend most of his life trying to share the gospel with them and doing ministry amongst them. And once the Li Su actually began to come to faith, they were quite young in their faith. 
He actually might even call them infants in faith, unable to truly discern spiritual truth. And he realized that he couldn't help these believers grow on his own. His prayers alone were insufficient. His work alone was insufficient. And even though his senders, his supporters, had sent him overseas, he still needed their help. And so he writes this letter to them. And in this letter, he writes this. I'm trying to roll the main responsibility of this prayer warfare on you. I want you to take the burden of these people upon your shoulders. I want you to wrestle with God for them. In other words, James O. Fraser, J. O. Fraser, realized that he needed his senders not just to give him financial support to go overseas. He needed these senders also to support him in the field and the work that he was doing through prayer. Sometimes we think as senders, our job often ends when we drop off a missionary at the curb at the airport. Bags are packed, houses sold, kids in tow, ticket in hand, passport ready. And then we'll expect to receive an update from them maybe every quarter. Maybe when they come for home assignment, we'll have a meal with them and catch up. But then once they're off, out of sight, out of mind. And we think that our role as senders has ended. But in reality, the struggle for a missionary continues on even when they arrive on the field. Can you imagine trying to learn a new language? Trying to be able to interpret the sounds that you hear, which just sounds like gibberish? Or even the words that you're trying to read, you don't know whether to read them right to left, up and down, or even if you're holding it right. How are you supposed to comprehend this language? And you wonder to yourself as a missionary, will I ever be able to understand the language enough to be able to actually share the gospel with anyone? I can barely even order my food in the restaurant. Will my third grade comprehension of this language be sufficient? Am I supposed to be here? Not only is there the struggle with the language and those doubts, but it's also the loneliness that you feel. Missionaries go to unreached people. Unreached people mean no Christians. That's typically what unreached means. That means nobody in your community will know the lyrics to Amazing Grace or In Christ Alone. They don't know who Tim Keller is or John Piper. They have no idea what you actually believe, and you are truly feeling lonely. Because in this community, of hundreds and thousands, you alone are the Christian. And maybe there's even those creeping doubts that come into your mind that wonder as a missionary, what did I do to pack up my family, to move them thousands of miles away, to expose them to the possibility of danger and harm and stares and people pointing to us on the streets? What am I doing here? As senders, once we drop off our missionaries at the curb of the airport, our work is not over. The missionaries on the field still need our support. And so that's the question that we're going to be addressing today, is how do we actually continue the work of sending even when missionaries are on the field? How do we continue to support our missionaries as they are on the field and as they are working amongst the unreached people group? How do we continue to encourage, how do we continue to send 
even as they continue to work on the field. To answer that question, we'll be looking at this morning's letter that was read to you in 3 John. We'll first look at the text. What is John writing? To whom is John writing? What is he actually trying to say? Then we're going to look at what is the principle or the idea or the theme that is still relevant to us today. And then we'll look at a few applications. So we'll look first at the text, what is John writing? Then we'll look at this principle for us today, and then we'll look at some applications. So first, let's look at the text. What does the text actually say? So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 3 John if you're not there already. Now, just because it says 3 John, it doesn't mean that it's the third letter that John wrote. I'm sure that he wrote many other letters. It's just that it's organized in this way within our New Testament. So it is the third letter of John in the New Testament. And we can summarize 3 John with this statement, that John instructs this person named Gaius, <clears throat> an elder of the church, a leader of this church, to continue sending missionaries well, rather than follow the poor example of Diotrephes. That John wants to commend, to congratulate, to celebrate what Gaius is doing, and to warn him, don't follow the example of this man Diotrephes that you hear about. So the letter of 3 John can be summarized as John instructs Gaius to continue sending missionaries well rather than follow the poor example of Diotrephes. Now the letter of 3 John can be further broken down into three parts. There are three people, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And John will have something specific to say to each of these people. So first, let's look at what John says to Gaius. John congratulates Gaius for sending missionaries well. John celebrates Gaius' actions. Why? It's because we see that Gaius' actions actually correspond with his beliefs. That what Gaius says he will do, he will actually do. And we see this in verse 3 and 4 through the use of a phrase, walking in the truth. And in these verses, we'll see it repeated twice. In verse 3, it says this, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this idea of walking in the truth is whatever Gaius says he believes, it manifests itself in action. That if Gaius teaches extend hospitality to others, Gaius will be extending hospitality to others. If Gaius is teaching we will speak the truth in love, he will speak the truth in love. That whatever Gaius says and teaches and believes, it corresponds with behavior, with action. And not only that, John also commends Gaius and congratulates him for actually receiving traveling missionaries that he's never met before. We see this in verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. That these strangers, these missionaries that John had sent out, had somehow needed to travel through the town of Gaius. And they would come to Gaius' house because John may have instructed them. So once you go down this particular street, Gaius' house would be the third on the right. And then these missionaries would knock on the door of Gaius. And maybe then Gaius would open the door and ask, 
and who are you all? And then these missionaries would respond, we are actually workers sent by the apostle John. And Gaius would receive them in. Or maybe they may have a code phrase that they would have used. They would have knocked on the door, and maybe these missionaries would have said, I hear that the bread in your house is quite fresh this morning. And Gaius would say, ah, and so is the fish. Or maybe he would have used the phrase, these workers would come by and knock on that door, and they would say, the Lord has risen. And Gaius would say, the Lord has risen indeed. And they received them in, right? That there was some way, somehow, that Gaius knew that these workers coming their way were going for the work of the gospel. So Gaius received these traveling missionaries that he's never met before. But John also instructs Gaius to send off these missionaries with their needs met. That John instructs that Gaius really needs to meet the needs of these traveling missionaries. And we see this in verse 6, in the latter half of this verse. John writes, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Manner worthy of God. Somebody said that this means money, 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 right? In the sense that John writes to Gaius, saying to him, You will need to provide financially for these missionaries as they travel forward. Now, it could be finances, but it could also be material needs. Perhaps they need food for their journey. Guys would go to his cupboard and get some food for them. Maybe they needed their water refilled, and he would go get water and make sure that it was refilled. Maybe they needed a coat for the journey, and guys would look in his closet and find that he had an extra coat and give it to them. So that whatever they needed, whatever need they had, Gaius would actually meet so that these brothers and sisters might continue in the work of sharing the gospel with others. Now, it's interesting also that John writes to Gaius and tells him that these missionaries should not accept any help from Gentiles. Uh, we see this in the following verse, in verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That these missionaries were meant to be supported by believers and not by non-believers. Now, how do I see non-believers? Because we see the word Gentiles here in verse 7. Now, the word Gentiles, we know, means non-Jew. But typically, that word is the word ethnos. Yet the weird word here is not ethnos, but is ethnicon, referring to actually non-believers. So it might be also another way to render this verse is accepting nothing from the heathen or from the pagan or from the non-believers. Now, why would John instruct this? It's because he didn't want any missionary to be accepting support, financial support, from non-believers lest they think that the gospel, the salvation of Jesus Christ, can be bought with money. And John didn't want that message to be misconstrued or confused. Now, John also says to Gaius that not only is he supporting these missionaries going forth, but he's also a partner with them in the work that they do. Uh, we see this in verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
that John is saying to guys that when you support these missionaries, you're not just filling their food sacks or their water jugs or giving them clothes, that you are fellow workers, that you are partners with them in their ministry. And so John congratulates and celebrates what Gaius is already doing and encourages him to continue to do this work well. But unfortunately, not everyone in the early church sends well because we have another man in this particular letter by the name of Diotrephes. And John condemns the behavior of Diotrephes for not sending missionaries at all that Diotrephes does not support this missionary endeavor, and John speaks out against it. Now, what does John see in Diotrephes that is so troubling? Well, first, Diotrephes fails to submit to the authority of John. We see this in verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Meaning that John, sending this letter to Diotrephes, maybe encouraging Diotrephes to host some of the missionaries that are coming to down, Diotrephes reads the letter and decides to throw it in the furnace or just throw it in the fire. And that he has no acknowledgement of John's apostolic authority. And that is an issue. A refusal to submit to the authority of an apostle and the instruction to care for missionaries. And not only does he fail to support the leaders, but Diotrephes also begins to speak untruths about church leaders. Uh, we see this in verse 10, especially the verse half. Verse 10 says this, So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That Diotrephes not only is refusing and not submitting to the apostolic authority of John, He's also beginning to whisper, 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 gossip, 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 saying these untruths about what John is doing and spreading it amongst his church. And that is not a good thing. Because what does John say in verse 10? I will bring up what he is doing. And remember, John is a son of thunder. Discipline is coming. Not only is Diotrephes refusing to submit to the authorities and also speaking these untruths about church leaders, but he also refuses to send these missionaries well. We see this also in verse 10. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. That when a missionary comes to town, he says, sorry, you have to check in at the inn. Maybe you'll find an Airbnb somewhere else, right? There is no welcoming in Diotrephes' home. And not only that, not only is it bad enough that Diotrephes is refusing these missionaries who are coming into town, he also expels other believers within his church who are doing that thing of welcoming missionaries. You see this in the last half of verse 10. And also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. That he's expelling brothers and sisters in Christ who want to send missionaries well from his community. And all this behavior has made some people say that Diotrephes should be known as Diotrephes, the dictator, or Diotrephes, the domineering. 
And they call this attitude of self-righteousness the atrophy's disease. That these people, people like the atrophies, want to be first. They want to be the head of every single committee. They want their voice, their truths to be known. And it's their way or the highway. And this can happen in ministerial staff. It can happen amongst church members. It can happen even amongst council members. That this disease is dangerous. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about diatrophies. And I'm going to read you a quote from something I read. He says this, I wonder if you recognize this fellow, Diotrephes, in many churches today. There are men like Diotrephes, men who want to run the church. I'm no longer a pastor of a church, and I can frankly say frankly what I think and what I know to be true. I'm not speaking of any theory whatsoever, but of what I know from experience over the years. I have met men who, although they put up a very pious front, have tried to run the church. I have no men like that in churches I have served, but thank the Lord I never had much trouble with them. Sometimes it is a little click which will do anything in order to rule. I have watched such people wreck church after church, a little group or an individual like Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence. And that is a warning to us that we need to really check ourselves and to see, do we have Diotrephes disease? Because if we do, that hinders our ability to send workers, to send missionaries well. Now, there is the third person that John speaks to in this letter. It's the man named Demetrius. And John commends Demetrius to Gaius. And we see Demetrius come up in verse 12. John writes, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. And so John is writing that when Demetrius comes to town bearing this letter, guys, receive him, because his testimony is good. That means he is in good repute in our church, that he is approved by me and from other members from our community. And such a testimony, such a reference does not come after days or weeks or months, but it comes after years. That John knows Demetrius well enough that he also walks in the truth and should be received by Gaius. So we have these three people. We have Gaius, we have Diotrephes, and we have Demetrius. So what bearing does this letter have for us today? What is the principle or the idea behind this particular text? I think that the idea or the principle that John is trying to highlight here is that the church has the responsibility of sending missionaries well. And we should imitate the example of Gaius. Uh, we see this in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. That we have this responsibility as senders to support our missionaries, and to send them off well. And where do we see that as a principle that comes from this text that we see in the New Testament? Is that the church first has a responsibility to send missionaries to preach the gospel. That we have a responsibility to send workers 
who will center their ministry amongst in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that is what drives them. That is what motivates them. That is what gets them to the field to be able to share the gospel with other people. And you would think to yourself, well, isn't that self-explanatory? Isn't that what missionaries do or are supposed to do? And the reason why I want to make sure that that's clear is because a lot of times we may think that social programs and community development projects <clears throat> is a great substitution for the gospel, and it's not. I know that social projects <clears throat> and also community development <clears throat> is important, that it should partner with, it should help preach the gospel. It's not the sole work. And we see this in verse 7. Remember, in verse 7 it says this, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. That every time the New Testament talks about for the sake of the name, it talks about suffering and undergoing persecution for the name of Christ. So we're going to do some Bible flipping, and we're going to see that Peter and John also suffer for the name of Christ as well. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And this is after Peter and John have preached the gospel, and now that they have been beaten, Luke writes this in verse 41 of Acts chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And we also see that God foretells the suffering that Paul would undergo for the name of Christ, in Acts chapter 9. So turn there as well, Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> and in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, we read this. Verse 16, Luke writes, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And not only does God foretell what Paul must suffer for the name, but Paul and Barnabas also suffer for the name. So if you turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, in verse 26, Luke writes this. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 15. Men, talking about Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see in the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament that missionaries are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if we truly believe in the gospel, if we truly believe that we live in a world that is broken, that is affected by sin, then we also believe that no one on their own merit or own strength can place their faith in Christ unless they hear the message of a son sent by heaven, crucified on a cross for their sins, and raised on the third day. Only then can the unsaved become saved. And if we truly believe in the gospel that unless someone goes to a people to preach the gospel to them, they will spend an eternity apart from God, then we're in trouble. Because if we truly believe that the gospel must go to every single people in this world, then we have no excuse not to participate in sending 
our missionaries and our workers out well. So the church has a responsibility to send missionaries to preach the gospel. But not only that, the church has a responsibility to provide for the needs of missionaries. Uh, look with me at verse 6 of Third John. John writes this, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Notice the word send. You will do well to send them on their journey. The word send oftentimes is used in the New Testament of supporting and providing what is needed for a person to do their ministry work. We see Paul writing to the Roman church to ask them for their support. We see this in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. So if you want to turn there with me, turn to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verse 24. One of the early support letters that were written. Verse 24. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped, helped being another word for send, on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay? And we see Paul also asking the Corinthian church for support in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So if you flip over and turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 6. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. Verse 6. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help, another word for send, help me on my journey wherever I go. And let's look at one more time in the letter of Titus after 2 Timothy. And this time, Paul is not asking for support for himself, but for two other workers, Apollos and Zenos. The letter of Titus in chapter 3, verse 13. Paul writes this, Do your best to speed, another word for send. Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way see that they lack nothing. And we see in the New Testament in these letters that Paul and the other apostles are asking the church to support and to provide for the needs of these missionaries that are going off to do gospel work. Now, not only does the church have the responsibility to send missionaries who preach the gospel and to provide for the needs of missionaries, but the church has the responsibility to send missionaries with partners, not sponsors. Uh, we see this in the letter of 3 John in verse 8. I read it earlier to us, but I want to read it to us again. 3 John verse 8, it says this, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be, wait for it, Fellow workers for the truth. Now, why does John write this idea of fellow workers, this idea of partnership? And I wonder if he gets it from the Lord himself. Because if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, you'll see something really interesting. Matthew chapter 10, verse 41. Matthew chapter 10, verse 41, it says this. The one who receives a prophet, prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Now you notice that first half of this verse, 
The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, meaning that if someone supports the work of a prophet, whatever reward the prophet will receive, those who support him will receive that same reward as well. That there is a somehow a symbiotic partnership that happens with those who are on the field and those who are at home sending them. That there is a relationship, there is a partnership. And the church should not be seen as a grant-giving body, where we are a bank that just dispenses checks to our missionaries, but we are a partner in the work that they are doing. And what does that mean? How do we actually do this well? How do we send our missionaries in a way that continues to support and encourage them? This brings us to the third part of this morning's message, that we need to learn how to send our missionaries with needs met. That we need to send missionaries with our support, with our encouragement, with our backing behind them. And how do we do that? I'm going to provide three ideas, three ways that you might want to consider. These are by no means exhaustive. First, we can send missionaries with needs met by thinking of how to meet their spiritual needs. Well, what do I mean by spiritual needs? That we need to really think about how we can actually be praying for our missionaries who are on the field. That instead of when we receive their updates, we hit archive or, God forbid, delete or move on to another email, we actually take the time to write down whatever prayer requests they have and actually put them somewhere where we will pray for them. And if you have trouble writing things down because you don't do that, the college students have commended a wonderful app on our phones that you can use to pray. It's an app called Echo, E-C-H-O. And you can actually type in your prayer requests so that when you use the app, you will actually pray for them. Now, if you're supporting multiple missionaries, consider maybe even taking one day to pray for one missionary, another day to pray for another. Or maybe when you gather together as a small group, maybe something you might want to consider is that one member of your small group would share about a missionary that they are supporting, what they are doing how they could be prayed for, and to dedicate five or ten minutes to pray for those missionaries. Now, not only can you pray to help meet those spiritual needs, but you also have to realize that these missionaries in the field, they don't have access to Lifeway or ChristianBook.com. Another way that you might be able to encourage our missionaries spiritually, maybe send them a book that you've read that's encouraged you. Put it in the mail. Send it by post. Meet their spiritual needs. Now, of course, we also have to talk about meeting their material needs, meeting their financial needs. And I can't help but tell you that a lot of missionaries who are aspiring to go to the field when I speak to them my, at my time as a volunteer at OMF, one of the things that they are most afraid of, one of the things, is meeting with people and asking for financial help. I mean, some people think that it's dreadful because they don't want to be coming off as a salesperson or a telemarketer, but they need your help, and they don't know how to broach it or ask for it. So if 
we are really considerate senders, maybe something we should consider is that if we know that there are aspiring missionaries who are going to the field, maybe we'll ask them out for coffee, ask them how they're doing, how their ministry is going. And before they ask or they share about their financial needs, why don't you ask, what are your financial needs? How can I financially support you? Rather than waiting for the soon-to-be missionary to actually bring that need before you. That as senders, we need to also take the initiative in seeing how we can actually encourage and support them. And it's not only by finances, but when people come back for home assignment, they don't have a car. And if you have an extra one laying around, maybe you might want to lend it to them. Maybe they might need a place to stay. That you would open up your homes for missionaries on home assignments so they don't have to worry about finding where they're going to be during their home assignment. Meet their material needs. But also consider meeting their relational needs. That when you receive those updates, at the end of them, there is not one that I have found that does not have the phrase, please let us know how you are doing. Or please share with us how we can be praying for you. Every single support letter that I have seen has that line. And what do we do? We don't write back. One of the things that we could do to really send our missionaries well is that when we receive an update letter, at least send them five sentences sharing with how you are doing. And that will encourage them so much because they are alone. I mean, yes, they may have teammates, but the teammates may be in another city or miles away. And if you feel really compelled to meet these relational needs with the advent of technology, with video conferencing, maybe you can schedule a time to meet and to talk with them so that you don't wait until home assignment before you see them. And you may be saying, but that means I have to stay up late because there is a time difference. You stay up late to watch Netflix anyway, right? Use your time well. Send our missionaries with needs met. These are just a few ideas in terms of how we can send our missionaries all, because we at HCC believe that we should make God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ wherever they may be. In order to partner with that work, we need to be a church that sends well. Can you imagine what it'd be like for missionaries to share with other missionaries on the field about their church? The HCC calls them, sends them things, prays for them, other missionaries are like, wow, that is different. Can we be a church that sends our mission workers out well? And I hope that we can. So this morning, we talked about what this text in 3 John is talking about. That John writes to Gaius, instructs him to continue sending missionaries well, rather than follow the examples of Diotrephes. And the principle that we see is this idea that a community, a church, should send missionaries well, and that we send missionaries with needs met. I kind of want to go back to the story about J.O. Fraser, because after he asked for that prayer, more workers began to come to the field to work amongst the Lisu. And then after even the death of J.O. Fraser, the Lisu church began to flourish. 
more people came to know Christ. And not only did more people amongst the Lisu community come to know Christ, they also began sending missionaries out as well to nearby villages to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no, I'm not God, and I can't say what actually compelled this type of spiritual revival amongst the Lisu, but if I had to guess, those ladies and those men back in the UK who spent days praying for J.O. Fraser for the community of the Lisu people whom they have never seen played a part in a thriving Christian community amongst this people group in southwest China. And I hope that we as a church, that every single member of us here could also say one day that we were partners in that work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you have richly blessed us in Christ and with the gospel. That we find our significance in you. And yet there are so many in this world that still have yet to even hear the name of Jesus Christ. And that should break our hearts. But we thank you for those that you have sent out from our midst to serve in places where we'll never go or never see. To preach the gospel to a people that we may never actually come in contact with. We ask that your spirit who dwells within us would empower us to send these missionaries, these workers, well in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. And we ask these things in our Savior's name.